Hello and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity and self-awareness. So I recently did an episode on boundaries with Melissa Urban. If you haven't listened, definitely go back and give that one a listen. I got so many messages from our listeners saying how much you all loved it and lots of requests to do more episodes on boundaries. So today I've got another boundary expert for you. Terry Cole is a licensed psychotherapist and relationship expert. And for over two decades, she's been working with clients. I think you'll really hear this in the episode. Terry's special gift is taking quite complex psychological concepts and making them feel really actionable and accessible. She inspires over a quarter of a million people every week through her courses, blog, her own podcast, and her new book called Boundary Boss is available now. And that is a brilliant resource. As I hope you'll learn as you listen to this episode, Terry is incredible on teaching us about boundaries. When I think about boundaries, I think there's three parts to boundaries. I think there's the education, which is what the hell are they? Why do I need them? And how do I know that I need them? I think the second part is then figuring them out for you because boundaries are so personal. They are completely different for every single one of us. And also they change depending on how old our kids are, how resourced we are, how much energy we've got. Boundaries are continually fluxing and changing. So that second bit It's all about self-awareness and knowledge, figuring out what matters to you. What are the boundaries that you need to set? What are your non-negotiables? And then the third step is actually being able to set them in your life and be really practical with how you're going to start getting those shifts and changes that we so want by using boundaries. And we talk about all three of those in this episode. So I really hope that you love it. You would have heard me talk about this so many times before, but I really think, I do really believe that boundaries are so often the missing piece of the puzzle as to why we can feel so resentful, so depleted, so exhausted. A really good place to start is boundaries. So I really hope this episode serves you and I hope you love it. Here it is. Terry, welcome. I'm so excited to chat to you today you know and as I was preparing for this I was just thinking you have such a depth and a breadth of experience so really I'm just here wanting to learn I feel like I'm a sponge sat in front of you this afternoon I'm just ready to learn it all and absorb all the wisdom well I'm super excited to see you again and to be here let's start with boundaries because this is something that you are incredible at teaching and sharing your experience with. And I actually don't think as mothers, there is something that we need to hear more. I know I need to hear it every single day. I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to protect my time. I have to keep hearing that. So for those people who maybe don't know you as well as I do, tell us about your career path from talent agent to psychotherapist and how boundaries have been such a piece of that puzzle and of your puzzle across your life? Long before I was a talent agent, I struggled with boundaries. I just didn't know that's what it was. So it's like I got into therapy young. I got into therapy when I was 19. I started drinking young too. started drinking when I was like maybe 12. And so got into therapy and stopped drinking when I was about 21. So I got into therapy my senior year at college, basically which is like a really weird time to stop drinking because that's when everyone is accelerating their drinking, right? Your senior year. But I just figured if I could stop now, I can just stop, which I did at the urging of the therapist who was pointing out that my behavior was like alcoholic behavior. And I was like, what? I was shocked. I was like, well, then everyone in my life is an alcoholic, Bev. And she was like, that may be true, but I'm only treating you. So either get it together or I will stop seeing you. And I was like, Whoa. Okay. So that was a huge early wake up. Thank God for Bev, because I really feel like that spared me many more years of many more disordered boundaries because, you know, all of that drinking, like I probably would have stopped eventually myself, but probably a decade later, I imagine of a lot of lost opportunities and BS that I could live without. So anyway, I become a talent agent and 
as I continued in my therapeutic journey. So it's like there was a parallel process always going on in my life where therapy played this very big role in my awakening, my evolution, making changes that I never would have made. And one of them, leaving entertainment. So I had a very sparkly job that people thought was great. I was making a lot of money. I was negotiating contracts for celebrities and supermodels. And I was young. I was in my early 30s. But I had really like worked to scale that Hollywood ladder, you know. And I kept thinking when I got to the top of that ladder or that mountain, I was going to feel a particular way, right? I was like, then I'm going to feel the way that I want to feel. And then I kind of got to what was sort of the top, but I didn't feel that way. And I was like, oh crap, I'm searching for this feeling in the wrong place. It's not the external things. And through my therapeutic process, I was able to come to the point of being like, I need to get out of here. And part of how I knew is that I really, truly did not care about the Pantene deal or the movie contracts I was negotiating. Like I actually didn't. What I cared about was the mental health of my clients. And I'm like, you need to go (laughs) because you care about the wrong thing if this is your job. And so I went to school. I went to NYU. I applied to exactly one graduate program because I'm like, I'm not moving to Ohio. And the only program I wanted to go to was NYU because it was a very clinically based program. I knew I was going to open a private practice immediately. That's what I wanted to do. And, you know, then I was like, well, if I don't get in, then apparently maybe that's not my dharma. I guess we'll see. Then I got in and I was like, holy crap, I got to quit. I got to go. And now I got to change my entire life and go. And I really thought about like, can I do this? Can I be poor? Because it's not like I had a really well thought out plan, dude. I did not. I'd made a ton of money. I had spent a ton of money. I had traveled. I had done whatever the hell I wanted for a bunch of years. So I was like, okay, can I be poor? And I really realized, you know, money was never the thing that made me happy. You know, it really was what I was doing. And when that no longer lit me up, even though everyone in the world was like, wait, you're quitting your amazing job. Why? To become a fucking social worker. Why? Like, I do not understand (laughs) what you're doing. And even my father was like, um, sounds weird. (laughs) Literally. That was my father's feedback. He's like, why would you do that? I was like, because I'm not happy. That's why. And I said, you know, dad, I know that that may not speak to you, but I don't care, no offense, but I don't need anything from you, right? I would love your support. That'd be great. And he eventually got on board with the whole thing. Anyway, the realizations I was having throughout that was A, how disordered my boundaries were. And being in entertainment, dealing with people with all this power and prestige and fame, talk about if you already have disordered boundaries, wow, it's like your life is not your own. People calling you at three in the morning, not caring. You're just of service to others. But through the therapeutic process, I realized like, wow, I have all this resentment in my relationships. I did not know why. I was like, it's other people. This person is so entitled. This person has all these expectations. This person, I can't believe after everything I've done for them that they wouldn't offer to help me, blah, 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 you know? And then through the therapeutic journey, I realized it really wasn't about other people. Oh my God, the common denominator and all of that frustration and that pain was me and that it was my high functioning codependency and it was my porous boundaries and all of those things that were causing me to feel the way I was feeling. And then I started shifting my boundary dances with the people in my life and changed my career and became a psychotherapist. And that was the beginning of me understanding though, that nobody knows how to do this. When I opened my private practice, I just kept seeing, I mean, I'd been a therapist for 25 years now, right? So this story is a long time ago, but over and over and over, seeing the same pain, the same frustration, and the same reasons. And I was like, literally nobody knows what boundaries are, how to establish them, how to uphold them. There's all of these terrible myths around boundaries. Like, you have to be mean. It's all about being aggressive. It's all about saying no and rejecting people. (laughs) And of course, none of that is true, obviously. So this is what brought me to write an entire book on exactly like, I have no boundaries or my boundaries are terrible or I don't know crap about boundaries. And this book is like, step one, here you go.
You're in exactly the right place. You don't need to know any more than you know. You just need to know how to read. Why is it, do you think, that so many of us, particularly I'm thinking now, the women and in particular the mothers that I know, why do we struggle? Because I think, yes, there's the education piece. What are these mysterious boundaries thing? But what I also see time and time and time again, and I know this in my own life, I know it, but when I come to set it, I can still, and I know for so many people, it still feels so, let's use that awful word, selfish. Why is that? What are the roots under that? It's such a good question. And it's so universal because it's funny. I've taught this to women in 250 countries. It's not just Europe. It's not just US. It's not just North America. It's everywhere. And listen, how were we raised? Zoe, how many times did you hear in your life? Like the expectation was be a good girl. Turn that frown around. Hey, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. We learned this so young. Where's my happy girl? Turn that frown around. Be nice. I was raised that being nice, being perceived as being nice, was like the do-all, end-all. It's all about being nice. And what does that mean? That means not prioritizing how you feel and what you think if someone else won't like it. It's prioritizing how other people, what they feel, what they think, making sure everyone's okay. We were raised and praised for being self-abandoning codependence. Literally, it was like boot camp in childhood. So we come to the topic of boundaries, not just from a neutral, I don't know how to do it place, from a deficit, because we're taught that the more self-sacrificing you are, the better you are. As a mother in particular, of course, you must be the earth mother, self-sacrificing, never think of yourself, always think of everyone else before. But what ends up happening is that you end up the way that I described. We end up bitter. Think about the people in your life who you know are martyrs. Think. You know people. Could be a grandmom, could be your mom. You don't think that when they were 30, they were like, I can't wait to turn into a total martyr. It's going to be amazing. No. It's from overgiving for so long that there's no free lunch. There's a part of you that feels like after everything I've done for all of these people, this is what they should be doing for me. Even though we don't think that when we're young, we don't think that will ever be us. There is the only place that this disordered boundary train, this lack of prioritizing self, the only stop on that train is Bitterland. That's it. You end up resentful as hell of everyone from your kids to your partner, to your friends, to your family, to your parents, to your employer, to the people who work for you, because we can't see that it's not them, even if it is them. We have trained all of these people to treat us the way they are treating us. And so now it's time to teach them to treat us differently because we must regard ourselves and our needs and our preferences, our desires, our limits, our deal breakers. We must regard them as something that's valuable. So if I may, I just want to break down my definition of boundaries and then we can go forward so that we're all sort of on the same page of what it is we're talking about. According to Terry Cole, your boundaries, I want you to think about them as your own personal rules of engagement. It lets other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. It is not selfish to share that information. It is very generous, brave, and loving to share that information because we're setting people up to succeed. Your boundaries are comprised of your preferences, your limits, your desires, and your deal breakers, meaning the non-negotiables for you and your relationships, your life, whatever those things may be. And it's not enough to know them which most people don't. You must know them and then have the ability to transparently communicate them. And that is what being a boundary boss is. So clear. And I completely remember what it was like to have that exact realization that you had. I was like, I feel resentful to everyone in my life. And someone pointed out to me, it was a boundary issue with me. I remember it blowing my mind. I remember this person 
she held my hand and she said, you know, a resentment is a sign that your boundaries are porous. You need stronger boundaries. It changed my life. It's so incredible. You know, you said about starting in a deficit. I also feel like there's another deficit that we start with with boundaries, which is so many of the mothers that I speak with struggle with even getting on the ladder of defining those boundaries because they don't feel worthy. There's a part of them thinks, who am I to have limits and preferences? Or they might not even know themselves well enough to figure out what that is. What would you say to that person? Two things. In the beginning of the book, I walk you through this exercise where, because exactly what you're saying, Zoe, is one of the first things that people say. They're like, I don't even know. I have no idea. This is so overwhelming. I don't know what my boundaries are. I don't know where I need them. I don't know where I don't have them. I don't even know anything. That's the feeling. So two things that are like the beginning of starting to get a more clear picture about the state of your boundaries right now and where you're going. Well, one thing people can do is I have a free boundary quiz, which will be really helpful. It'll tell you your archetype. It's just at boundaryquiz.com. Literally, that's the URL. So it's 13 questions, super helpful. The first thing in the book we do though, is we do a pretty extensive thing that I call the okay and not okay list, where you're going to go through every part of your life and really from the smallest things like, oh, in my office, there is a light in the ceiling that's really caustic that I hate. Maybe I should change that bulb. Maybe I should make that a 40 watt bulb instead of a 100 watt bulb. Or maybe don't ever use a ceiling light, according to me. Like those things, right? Is it okay how much emotional labor you're doing in your family, your home? Meaning, is there equity at all? Or is a lot of what's getting done getting done because you're doing it. You feel like if you've chosen, if you've made an agreement with your partner that you're staying home with the kids, does that mean that you also think that you should then do everything else? And is that happening? And how do you feel about that? So the okay and not okay list gives you an idea of what is bothering you in your financial life, your relationships, your home life, because our physical surroundings really do impact us. And a lot of times we don't put our attention on those things. We're like, it's not a big deal. Here's the thing. All of these small deals build up to being a big deal and your comfort, your preference matters. And this is something that I think is mind blowing to so many people who read this book is where we've been very conditioned to be like, it's fine. It's all good. It's all good. You know me, no must, no fuss. I'm all like, why is having no preferences? preferable. Why do you think your preference is a burden? It isn't. Your preference is exactly that. And I really highly encourage my clients and people in my mastermind and all the things I do for us to control and change the things that we can in life so that we're getting our own needs met. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Sometimes these are really small things that you can change, but they make your life more pleasant. They make you feel more satisfied. So that's one thing is the okay and not okay list. And then the next thing I'm going to suggest that we do is take a resentment inventory. Because this is really going to show you where a need is not being met. And this could be because you haven't set the boundary, but you need to. This could be because you've set the boundary, but the person is kind of a bit of a boundary bully and just keeps agreeing that they're going to stop doing the thing, but then keeps doing the thing, requiring you to come back to the situation over and over. Something is happening where we feel resentful. And so that's a really good place to start to look and go, huh, I'm really resentful of my mother-in-law. Why? Oh, because she doesn't call before she stops over the house. And I feel like it's too rude to ask her to, but I really resent her not checking to see if it's an okay time with me. Oh, okay. So there needs to be a boundary conversation there. You can do it lovingly. You can start with sweetness. Maybe you really like your mother-in-law. You just don't like her popping over to your house unannounced. So you can start with, I so appreciate that we have such a good relationship and I love how much you're willing to help with the kids. It really makes a difference. And I'd like to make a simple request that before you stop by, you actually text me 
to check because the last time you came, I was in the middle of a meeting and I didn't want to be rude to you and I couldn't get off the call and it puts me in an uncomfortable situation, but I would really appreciate a heads up. You can do that. So I think a lot of times when we think about setting boundaries, we think about, I need to ball my mother-in-law out. I need to tell her on no uncertain terms that she's not stopping by. No, here's the thing. Half the time when you finally assert a boundary request, your preference to someone, probably half the time, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, totally. I actually didn't even think about it, but you know what? You're right. I will. Thank you for telling me that it matters to you. Thank you for telling me how you felt about that. This is how we deepen our intimate relationships. It's not about endlessly people-pleasing because that doesn't ultimately please you or them because they don't even friggin' know you. When we're just trying to keep the peace, all of this under the umbrella of being nice, quote unquote, because let's think about it, honestly, Zoe, is it nice to say yes when you want to say no? Is it actually nice? No. It's just you avoiding conflict. That's what that's doing. There's a great saying that, you know, by keeping silent to keep the peace starts a war within you. I love that quote. And it's so true. It's so true, isn't it? And I love that you're suggesting a resentment inventory because I have done lots and lots and lots of resentment inventories in my past 15 years or so. And do you know what was always incredible is by the time you get to about the 10th resentment, the pattern is becoming so clear and it's almost painful. As you keep writing, you're like, oh, there's me again. Yep. Okay. Not stating my needs and feeling resentful. Oh, there's me again, not stating. It's like I only had, I remember the first couple of times I did it, I only had, and probably still three big patterns. You know, one was avoiding conflict. One was pushing my needs down. And the other was trying to manage other people's moods. But it was only through doing that resentment tool, which actually was part of my 12-step recovery, which is, you know, they call it step four. It was only by doing that that I could see these big patterns. And it was only by seeing the big patterns, I could take responsibility because it's my pattern. And the resentment to the other people, I have to say, just sort of fell away very quickly. It's a remarkable exercise. It's so cool though, that you actually saw in your experience, the direct connection between realizing Seeing the pattern and being like, oh, it's almost like, you know, in horror movies, when they're like, the call is coming from within the house. You're like, oh my God, I am doing this. <laughs> I'm offering. I'm being silent. I'm self-abandoning in the service, quote unquote, of my relationships. So let's talk a little bit about what that really is, because this is actually, it's what my next book is about. My next book is about high-functioning codependency, which is an actual term that I coined, and I'll tell you why. So let's first talk about codependency, and then we'll talk about high-functioning codependency, shall we? Because the foundation of codependency is disordered boundaries. That's it. This is the foundation of what codependency actually is. So according to me, codependency is when we are overly invested in the feeling states the outcomes, the circumstances, the situations of the people in our lives to the detriment of our own internal peace, our own financial, physical, psychological well-being. Now, as mothers in particular, of course we are invested in the happiness of those we love. This is just having relationships. Obviously, we are invested. But with codependency, we're more than invested. With codependency, when something bad happens to someone we love, it feels like something bad happening to us. There's a very difficult time separating. So if you're not sure, if you're like, well, I don't know if I'm overly, well, if your best friend calls you in a crisis, I want you to check your urgency. How quickly did your best friend's problem literally become yours, where you are Googling, you are making phone calls, you are underlining stuff in books for her, you're auto advice giving, you're like, oh, I'm getting in my car, I'm coming to you right now. That is a codependent response to 
someone else's pain. Because when we think about codependency, and this is something that is rarely talked about, but it's true, it is an overt or covert bid to control the outcomes of others, whether that's controlling their mood, as you said before, which basically triggered this part of the conversation, whether that's controlling their actions, whether that's covering for them because we don't want them to get in trouble, whether that's writing the entrance essay for children to get into college, whether that's finishing the science project the kid didn't do, it's inserting ourselves in the center of the other person's situation as like offering ourselves up as the solution. I'm going to help you. I see you need help. I know what you should do. I'm going to help you. I, I know people I can call. I can get you a job. All of the things. So the reason I came up with high-functioning codependency is that my therapy practice, my clientele, were women like me, very highly capable, or women like you, who are doing all the things, taking care of kids, taking care of parents, having burgeoning careers, having online empires, writing books, having podcasts, doing all the things. So when I would say, hey, what you're describing is a codependent pattern, they'd be like, yeah, no, wrong lady. I'm not dependent on squat. Everyone is dependent on me. What? I'm making all the decisions. I'm making all the money. I'm the rock in my family of origin, and I'm the decision maker in the family I created. So I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, I see. My clients don't know what codependency is. It's in the mind. It's like, Melody Beatty, codependent no more. You must be enabling an addict to be codependent. And I'm like, nah. What I saw over 25 years and in my own experience as a high-functioning codependent, because I wouldn't have identified as a codependent at all. I was my client, right? And feeling like I'm making moves. I'm making decisions. I'm doing things. I'm not dependent. So my clients couldn't see the source of their pain was in this relational pattern because they didn't identify with the moniker. So when I switched it to high-functioning codependency, and basically the only difference is we're suffering, but people don't know. People look at us and go, that girl has got it all together. She's the one. If you need help, go to Zoe. She's got you. Trust me, she's fine. She's always fine. The one in the family that's always fine. Where no, nobody was worried about me. They're like, no, because I was the hero child in my family system. Nobody was like, how you doing? Someone says, how are you? Fine. And what I would think is, because I'm always fine and I'm always going to be fine because that's what I do. That does not change that the over-functioning, over-giving, over-investment, even over-feeling that we experience in our relationships is healthy. It doesn't make the best relationships. And what I see in my therapy practice is if you do it for decades, you cannot keep doing it autoimmune disorders, TMJ, insomnia, like so many physical ailments, along with MS, cancer, other things, that I feel like it is so stressful to our nervous system to always sort of be on this high alert, to have this sense of over-responsibility for the people in our life, that there's only so long that you can do it. Anyway, so that's my two cents on it, and that's why I'm writing a book on high-function codependency, because it is curable, just like having disordered boundaries. We can learn to do it differently. And on the other side of doing it differently is our deepest intimate relationships. It is letting other people actually know us. Because if we're saying yes when we want to say no, if we're self-sacrificing all the time, people don't know us. So how can people authentically love you if your life is managing them? I just felt like my whole life was managing people, managing my relationships, managing my family, managing everybody. I'm excited to tell you about this week's sponsor, which is dog food company Pooch and Mutt. And the reason I'm so excited is because Pooch and Mutt is my husband Guy's company. So we're keeping it in the family this week. I watch firsthand how much time, passion and focus goes into making Poochamut products, which include food, treats and dental sticks. They're all vet recommended and formulated with natural supplements and functional ingredients, never any junk or nasties, which support your dog's physical and mental health. I would say at its core, Poochamut is a health-led company because Guy and the team 
know that what you eat affects the way you feel and they are all pretty obsessed with helping your dog feel as amazing and happy as they can be. So Pooch and Mutt offers different products to cater for various health conditions and life stages of pets, such as anxiety, digestive issues, joint health, weight management, skin issues, dental health, all the way from puppy right the way through to senior. So if you want to give a food, a treat or a dental stick a try, then my very generous husband is offering 25% off for Motherkind listeners. That's 25% off online at poochandmutt.co.uk using code MOTHERKIND25. That's MOTHERKIND25 at poochandmutt.co.uk. And please note this excludes subscriptions. How does someone know the difference between being a good friend, being a good mother, being a supportive partner, being part of the community, helping out, rallying around when someone has a disaster or there's a, you know, we're collecting money for the clothes bank? How does someone know that that's just who I want to be in the world? That's that nurturing part of me. That's the part of me that connects to others versus what you're saying, which is what I'm hearing is almost a compulsive, unmanageable desire to want to get into the business of others. What are the, some of the signs that people could be listening going, ah, okay, that is a sign that I'm stepping into what you would call this sort of unhealthy codependency? Well, part of it is if you can't not do it, it is not a choice. It is a compulsion. So if someone has a problem and you can't not start auto advice giving immediately, having ideas, having plans. I've had a similar experience. Let me tell you what happened for me. You may go, but isn't that loving? I want to help them. Well, you can learn a different way of helping because what's more loving rather than centering their problem on you is centering their problem on them, having faith. So if I have a friend who comes to me with a problem, 20 years ago, I would have been like, I know exactly what you should do. I got this. I know people. I'll make phone calls, right? I would center myself. I wasn't consciously centering myself, but I was by thinking I knew what they should do. What I do now is my friend comes to me with a problem and I go, okay, so what does your gut say? What do you think you should do? If you did know, what would it be? How can I best support you? Well, I want to know what you think. Of course, people ask me all the time what I think because of what I do. And I always say, no, no, no. I want to know what you think. Because here's the thing, babe, what you think is what matters because it's your life. So what I would do, and I'll tell you my opinion later, but let's really try to dive into what you think you should do. Because the thing is, when you're a high-functioning codependent and when you are well-respected and when people think you have a brain, they also start blaming you when they take your advice and it doesn't work out. When the thing that worked for you didn't work for them, but you were so sure it was going to. So we don't want to be taking responsibility for other people's lives. So how do you know what you're doing? How do you know if you're doing it? First, if you can't not, then it's a compulsion. Second thing is, I really feel like we have to go in first. It's not just about changing behavior. It's about understanding why you feel so threatened by other people's lives being out of control in your estimation, why you're so afraid for others to make a mistake. Part of how I came to this in my own life is that one of my sisters was in a bad situation. I have three older sisters and this one always had a lot of problems and addiction issues. And so she was living with this abusive guy in the woods with no running water. Like it was a total disaster, you know, and I couldn't stop trying to control it and fix it. I couldn't stop trying to get her out of there. I couldn't stop trying to throw money at it. I couldn't stop. It was so painful to think that she would let someone physically hit her. It was just brutal. And I remember going to my therapist and I was like crying, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? She won't let me fix it basically. And my therapist was like, Terry, what do you mean? What are you going to do? And I was like, I've got to do something. How can I just leave her there? And she's like, let me ask you something. What makes you think, you know, what your sister needs to learn in this lifetime? And I was like, uh, I think we can both agree she doesn't need to learn it in an abusive relationship. And she was like, I cannot agree with that. I'm not God. I have no idea what lessons your sister needs to learn and in which way. Like she's on her own journey, Tara. You are not responsible. And I was like, so what do I do? She's like, well, you need boundaries because what is really happening is that you've worked for 20 years 
to create a pretty harmonious life. And your sister's life, being a total shit show, is really messing with your peace. And you want that to stop. And I was like, well, that does not sound like Mother Teresa, which is what I thought I was, but you're correct. I do want that to stop. I thought of it like I'm just a helper. I'm just a lover like that, you know? And then really seeing it in the stark terms of what she basically proposed, I was like, this is the truth. And she said, you don't have to let her talk to you about this abusive guy. Like you need a boundary because it is so distressing to you. So she helped me come up with a way to draw a boundary with my sister saying, I love you. And if you ever want to get out of this situation, I'm still your person, but I cannot talk to you about this guy anymore. Like I can't. And so probably in nine months, I only talked to her like two or three times. And then she called me at the end of the nine months and was like, hello, are you still my person? (laughs) And I was like, yes, I am. I'm getting in my car right now. And she left of her own accord. She was the hero of her own story. She got that growth, not because I quote unquote, let her, because it's not my job to let or not let. She got it because I took care of myself, which is appropriate and correct to draw that boundary, to protect my internal peace. And that allowed her to do what she needed to do. And so that really changed things for me, where I didn't think I had a choice. I thought to be a good sister, I had to control what was happening, or at least try. And what I learned was that that was my sister's side of the street, and that I could still be a good sister and love her from afar until she really wanted me to help her. And me helping her in that way is not codependent. I did exactly what I said I would do. And I did what I could do within my means. We had this little lake house that my husband and I then kind of winterized so she could live there for free for two years. When she went back to school, she got sober. Like, But I could do that without hurting myself, right? That was within my capability to do. And it did help her appropriately. There's so much that I resonate with this because I've had some really similar experiences. And I learned that the rescuer in me was really trying to avoid the pain. Like it's a really good way to avoid pain and grief is to just compulsively try and get in there. Because I imagine when you set that boundary, I don't know, the feelings might have come about the sadness and the grief of, I really learned that in a relationship that I did the same thing in. The other thing that I learned that was incredibly powerful that you've just reminded me of, which is that all the time that I'm doing that, and I I really have to remember this with my kids, every time I'm, why don't you, you should. What I'm really saying underneath that is, I don't think you can figure this out yourself. I'm actually disempowering. And when I did this with someone in my life who I was always helping. I'd send them jobs. This person was looking for a job. Here's a job. Here's a job. And I thought, what I'm really saying is I don't think this person are capable of, of course they're capable of finding their own job. I stopped doing it. Hey, presto, after six months, this person phoned me and said, you know, I think I found the perfect job because I think there's a shift that that person can feel, which is like, Terry, Zoe, they believe that I can do this in my life. They believe in me. And I'm sure your sister felt that energy shift. Like she believes that I can figure this out on my own. Maybe I can, as opposed to the opposite, which is she doesn't believe I can figure this out. Maybe I can't. It's very disempowering. That is such a great point of the underlying, the subtext of what is being said and what is being communicated. And especially with children, it's so important. And especially with teens and adult children, it's like this desire to make sure kids don't make mistakes. And if they do to like get them out of the mistake, of course, and they've got to know that you believe we had a situation when Vic and I were raising our kids that I, I married a widower. They were already young teens, sort of really acting out when I came into the scene, three boys. And one of our kids was just continually coming back, asking for money. We were paying for rent. He didn't use it for rent. And then he was in arrears and was like spending the money. It was like really a bad situation. And I remember my husband, so much guilt because their mom died when they were little kids. And it was like, my husband was just throwing money at this kid out of guilt is what it felt like to me. And I said to him, listen, A, I do not want to be a party to this because what you're saying to Joe is 
Joe is saying to you, I'm afraid I'm a loser. And you're saying, oh, you are a loser. I agree with you. You're afraid you're a loser? You are. I'm going to bail you out. It's about me. I'm going to give you this money. No. From that point forward, I was like, listen, Joe needs to hear from you that you think he can do it. Coming to us, I want you to co-sign for this thing. No, no. You're going to figure it out yourself because I have no doubt that you will. And of course he did. And soon after that, he moved to Ohio to get a job. Like, because he needed, I think, to hear that his father thought he could do it. I mean, when I was growing up, parents were, my parents were not, they were like, you graduate college, good luck. Like I moved with like a garbage bag full of my clothes into a laundry room in Long Island that I loved, paid $200 a month. And I was so psyched. It never entered my mind that I couldn't do it because nobody was like, here's money for rent because it'll be hard to get a job. No, I got a job quite quick because I had rent to pay. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I think, you know, even when parenting little ones saying, what do you think about that? I do that a lot. You know, the, the incessant questions that you get when they're little. Why is, it like, why is that like that? Why is that like that? I just turn that straight back on them. Why do you think the answers they come up with are hilarious? But what I think, I hope I'm trying to teach them is like, you can figure this stuff out. Your opinion matters. It's so powerful and it is so different than... You know, I think, you know, we're in this intense mothering phase, aren't we, of of life where, you know, the idea is that we have to give all our kids the answers and we have to be there in and helicopter mothering. And and I love what you're saying, which is the opposite of all that, which is that to protect our energy, to protect our peace first, and then give from a place of conscious choice, not giving from a place of, as you would call it, high functioning codependency. It's really powerful. The generosity, though, you know, Zoe, that comes with, you know, what would help your kids so much more than you doing their homework for them or you fixing all their problems is being able to tolerate their upset feelings, allowing them to feel the way that they feel, being with them, asking them, oh, it looks like you're having big feelings. Can you tell me why? What's going on? Like so much of the time, we want to control. We don't want them to be sad. We don't want them to be hurt. They're having problems at school. And we're like, I'm going to the principal and I'm going to call that other parent. And I'm not saying allow your kid to be bullied without, but I am saying it helps them so much when we can regulate our own emotions. We teach them, we co-regulate with them because here's the thing. Life is not smooth sailing. There's going to be problems. And if we magically fix the problems they're so ill-equipped to do it themselves like yeah this is hard this is tough acknowledging what they're going through but being with them because so much of the time i i've seen in my clients you know the parenting is like you have no reason to feel that way you have everything are you ungrateful we got you the thing you wanted we did the other thing why are you crying about some kid down the you know what i mean And I'm like, that's so invalidating to a child. Yeah, it's true. It's so important. And that validation within ourselves, like you just said, this is so hard. I need to hear that all the time from myself. This is so hard. You're allowed to feel angry. This is so hard. You're allowed to sob. This is so hard. You're allowed to not know what you think about this yet. Just that permission for it to be hard. It is really hard, isn't it? As you said, we haven't been taught about boundaries. We haven't been taught about codependency unless, you know, you were lucky like you and I, you know, I was 21 when I went to therapy. So a few years after you, you know, that is so rare. And that is, I think, you know, where my passion and mission comes from, because I just wish that, you know, more people, particularly mothers could have some of these tools because they are so life-changing, aren't they? Particularly boundaries, I think. Agreed. And self-care in a real way. And that's internal boundaries, right? Where we don't have to do it all. We can't do it all. We need community. We need to rest. We need to prioritize our health in a real way. And I think that really that whole outdated mother as, you know, the person who would give anyone the shirt off her back, where I just want to be like, Betty, keep your friggin' shirt on. Like, why is that a good thing? Be discerning about who has access to you. Be discerning about where you are bleeding your bandwidth because it's limited. Allow yourself to rest. Allow people to help you. Ask for help because this is another thing with high-functioning codependence. 
oh, we're great at helping other people, but we are not that great at asking for allowing or receiving help that's readily available to us. It's like there's this psychological piece where it can be so hard, where we're like, I don't want to burden anyone else. My whole thing was, I don't want to owe anybody. I'd rather do it myself. I don't want to owe anybody anything. But it's a solitary existence, not really being in community. As if it's transactional, like, I'll do this for you, you do this. I'm the same. Like, I feel like, again, asking for help is something that is so foundational and so important for women and mothers. And it's really hard to do in practice. There's such a vulnerability in asking for help. There's such a skill in knowing how to do it. There's such a skill in knowing how to hold it if someone sets a boundary back with you, which of course is the other side of boundaries, right? If someone says, I hear you, Zoe, I hear you really want me to pick the kids up on Thursday. I can't. That's someone else's boundary. How do I hold that then? You know, this stuff is so hard. Right. And why is it so devastating? But here's the question for us. Why is that quote unquote rejection a preference of an ask, why is that so hard? Why does that make us think and say, last time I ever asked them for anything? Or I shouldn't have asked. I shouldn't have asked. For me, I go internal. Oh God, I shouldn't have asked. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. That's what I do. I like apologize for the ask when they set the boundary. And here's the thing. Of course you should ask. And you're not that fragile. So part of it is let's just change our minds about these conversations. Let's just change our minds. There are people in your life right now, every person listening to this, who want to help you. People right now, people who offer that you reject. I have to reject help from like the cab driver. I'm going to Europe with a huge bag. He's trying to get out of that. I'm like, I got it. Don't worry about it. Just pop the trunk. Why? What is wrong with you, Terry? Let the guy lift your bag into the drunk, you're going to overtip him anyway. Like, just let him do it. And there is something that the hyper-independence I see as part of this high-functioning codependency is that there is such a hyper-independence of like, I got it, I'll do it myself. But there's such a high cost emotionally, physically, bandwidth-wise, all of it, health-wise. So I want you to think about you, Zoe, and everybody listening. There are people who want to help you right now. And I want you to start letting them. And if you ask someone and they say no, it's okay. Don't say you shouldn't have asked. Of course you should ask. It's okay. And if someone asks you to do something and you truly don't have the bandwidth, it's also okay for you to say no. Learning that you can buy time, especially for people who like give an insta yes a lot, where you're just like, of course, yes, of course. When other people ask you to do things, Just start right now, stopping. There is no insta-yesing. We are not saying yes to anything immediately, no matter what it is. We have taught people to treat us a particular way. Now it's time to teach them something else. So when people ask you to do stuff that you don't know if you want to do, or you don't know if you have the bandwidth to do, or maybe you know you don't want to do it, but you don't know how to say no, is you're just going to buy time by saying, you know what? Okay, let me, I would think about that. I need to check my schedule. I need to check with my partner. I need to whatever, right? You're going to buy time. Maybe you're not going to say no right away, but you're also not going to say yes right away. It is so much easier to come back to that person and say, oh, I checked with whoever. And actually we're we're already, we already have plans on that day, but thank you so much for thinking of us. I hope you guys have a great time. Or I looked at my schedule and I actually can't help you move on that day. Or if they ask you to help them move all day on Saturday, you can say, I looked at my schedule. I can help you from 12 to 2. That's when I'm available and I'm happy to do it if that will help you. I'm not helping you move all day on my weekend because I don't want to. That's why I don't want to. Now, you don't have to say that, but there's nothing wrong with not wanting to and giving a limit, right? That's why your boundaries, they're not all the same. Your preferences, desires, limits, and deal breakers, they're of not of unequal importance, right? It goes from sort of a preference is a nice to have and a deal breaker is a must have. So that's why you must know what those things are. But when you start to give yourself permission to be more authentic, to be more honest, your life will change in ways that you will feel so much more seen, heard, known, 
and really the world, we need you guys. We need you, your authentic self, not your, I'm saying yes, even though I want to say no to be nice self, because at the end of life, that is very unsatisfying for everyone. Yeah, well, that's, you know, one of the top five regrets of the dying, isn't it? I wish I'd lived a life truer to myself, not what everyone wished of me. I think that might be the top regret. I need to dig that book out. Oh, this has been an incredible conversation. Really, really loved it. And you've reminded me of so many things in my own recovery and healing around some of this stuff. And I'm so grateful to you and your work. Where can someone find out about you and the book and all the other things that you do? First of all, I have a gift for your audience. So I'm giving you a lesson on boundaries and codependency and a PDF where you'll get to do a bunch of prompts and learn more so you can see sort of where you are on the scale. You can find that at boundaryboss.me forward slash motherkind. Amazing. Thank you so much. So that is downloadable there. We'll put that in the show notes as well. You can find me at terrycole.com. I'm going to be actually leading my boundary boot camp in May. So if this comes out before then, hopefully people can join because I don't always teach it live, but I am actually teaching it live because I'm doing it coinciding with the uh, paperback of Boundary Boss is coming out in May. So I'm launching the course again, which is exciting. And you guys can follow me on Instagram, Terry Cole. It's like, just look for my name. I'm everywhere. I've got my own podcast that I've had for seven years. I've got a YouTube channel with 500 free videos for you. So I'm really, really committed to everyone having this information, regardless of socioeconomic anything. If you want to change your life and you don't have one penny, go to my YouTube channel and you will change your life. Yeah. Your YouTube channel is amazing. I love it. I really love it. Thank you so much for all the work that you do in the world. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I really want them to get that What they think, what they want, how they feel needs to matter to them more than the way anyone else thinks, feels, and what they want. How you feel literally needs to matter to you the most because that is what's going to guide your life in an authentic and loving way. And it's not selfish to know that. You can still compromise. You can still give. You can still be the loving person that you are, but you have to care about what you want, how you feel, and what you think. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 